Welcome to History Business, a guide to being a historian for hire, a new podcast taking an honest look at building a freelance or portfolio career in the field of history. I suppose that we should introduce ourselves first. My name is Laura. I am an art historian and museum educator turned historical consultant, writer, researcher and presenter specialising in medieval art and museum studies, but then later transferred to 18th century social history, in particular the history of fashion. And this week, an article came out that I was featured on about glowing skin. I was consulted about radiance and the history of exfoliation. And this week, I've been doing a lot of work regarding Irish textiles on the French runways. And I'm Lucy Jane Santos. I'm a historical consultant, researcher, writer and presenter. And I specialise in examining the historic crossroads of health, leisure and beauty with science and technology. Uh, I've had a bit of a mixed bag this week. So I was interviewed um, on Zoom for a student documentary and they asked me lots of questions about the history of false eyelashes. And no, Laura, the, the very rude origin did not come up. Um, <laughs> Gosh, damn it. <laughs> was that a pun as well? Um, and also, I recall. Ah, yes! <laughs> no, this, this is a serious history um, business thing. We're not going into that. Um, but also, I recorded an episode uh, for the podcast London History. Um, and in that one, I was talking about uh, nightclubs in London in the 20s and 30s, those illicit ones where. Uh, Booze was drunk out of uh, teacups, which was usually a more thought of as an American thing, but we also did it here. In this week's episode of History Business, we will be tackling all those very important questions about setting up and running a freelance business, whether a limited company might be the right structure instead, and maybe even finding out how to get paid. We are delighted to have Karen Averby here with us today. Karen Averby is a historian and research consultant. Karen has worked in the heritage sector since 1997 and moved into private consultancy in 2006 to specialise in historical research. You may also know her as one of the experts behind hashtag House History Hour on Twitter, which is a fantastic way to spend a Thursday evening. Karen has written many books, which include examining town halls, seaside hotels and beach huts, and her media work includes Great British Railway Journeys and historical research for the Antique Roadshow Detectives. Director of Archangel Heritage Limited, a historical research consultancy established in 2010, and also very fortunately for us here today on History Business. You can follow her on Twitter at Karen Averby or at Arc a Heritage on Instagram at karen.averby and of course you can also get in touch with her via karenaverby.co.uk and archangelheritage.co.uk. All handles and forms of communication of course as ever would be listed in the description and can be found on our socials. Welcome to the show Karen. That was quite an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah that was Lucy. <laughs> She's phenomenal at writing instructions. 
I just love I love it. I love, love, love introductions. I just think they're so much fun because you you find out so much about the person just from having a look on on various websites and stuff. And there's always so much to write. There's, there's all, the thing about the guests on this show is everyone does so much and it's really, really mm. cool. So I can't leave anything out. So this is such an important topic and one that we really had to think carefully about who to ask to sort of navigate us through this minefield. And also one of the problems we had is that when we spoke to people about business and finance, um, there was quite a few people who admitted they weren't very good at that side of things. And this is something that we are aiming to solve today. Now, personally, my business structure is self-employed, but I'm considering changing to a limited company format soon. And I am one of those people. I haven't a notion. It is such a minefield. And I'm actually really, really, really excited for this episode. Thank you for coming on, Karen. Thank you. I hope I can help. (laughs) My first question for you today, as we kick off our episode on finance, you do so much. Could you talk us through what services you offer as a historian and research consultant and what a day in your working life would look like? Oh, that's that's quite a question. Two questions. I'll try not to waffle on too much. And yes, I do do uh, quite a lot of different things. Um, My limited company, Archangel Heritage Limited, is essentially an historical research consultancy and as such provide historical research for the commercial heritage sector throughout the UK. Um, So things like heritage reports to support planning applications uh, for buildings and sites of all types and all dates, or um, historical research to support conservation works, um, looking at former paint and colour schemes or decor in historic buildings. Um, So we work with conservation specialists, architects, planners, archaeology and heritage consultants, um, as well as local councils, national heritage bodies, and also people like estate agents who uh, might need research of properties coming onto the market. And also things like company histories, um, for example, at the moment, working on a company history for their 100th year anniversary, and they're going to be producing a book. Essentially, anything that historical research can be applied to, any ways that it can be used. And it's quite exciting to see the different ways that it can be used in, in business planning applications to conservation and we've even been commissioned to provide research for the police um, relating to a murder case so quite a range there anything from garages seaside shelters churches almshouses civil defense structures public toilets uh, tram depots I don't know if there's a building type we haven't researched over the years so it's quite diverse Um, but one of the main things that I do is house histories and that forms a large part of uh, research commissions often for private clients and estate agents from humble cottages to grand country piles and everything in between and as a research consultant I'll advise clients on research they might need for a project sometimes provide training for them or their staff on how to research for their particular project needs And I can also suggest and advise on archives or specialist collections that might be needed. Um, Also undertake archive appraisals, uh, usually business archives that may not have been catalogued, uh, just to find out what's actually in their archive, um, which can become great promotional assets for them, such as images, plans, even letters. And I can also advise on uh, whether my like to deposit their archive too. Um, I used to be an archivist back in the day, so it's, it's kind of interesting to be on both sides. And then as Karen Averby, I do um, 
of some freelance work on quite a few subjects. I do uh, talks, workshops on historical research and all sorts of historical topics. And of course, um, when I've got time, I explore my own research interests. And I'm also currently enjoying a temporary contract with the Survey of London, uh, working part time for them as well, which ends in a few months sadly but um so I have quite a full between Archangel Heritage and my freelance work and the Survey of London really busy at the moment I don't I mean I don't have a typical day as such because projects and commissions are so varied I could be you know in, in another part of the country or I could be working from home but if, if I'm not working at the Survey of London and if I am working from home um, I get up about eight o'clock eight thirty depending on whether I need to be traveling or not I work from home when I write up, I work from home. So I head to my desk around 9.30 and check my emails and respond accordingly, um, including uh, forming like project proposals or fee proposals and project admin as is needed, looking at any new commissions that have come in and prioritizing them into the schedule. And then I'll start work. <laughs> Perhaps I'll go through images I've taken at the archive in the last few days, I'll sort them and label them. And if there are any upcoming archive visits that I need to make, I'll arrange appointments. I'll look at online archive catalogues and see what documents I might need. And then I might do some reading for a project or write up some research reports. I usually try and make lunch the same every day between one and two. And I try to make it an hour if I can, although sometimes that does slide. I think we've all been guilty of that. And um, my other half also works at home. So we do try and have lunch together at the same time. So that that you know makes it into a sort of a definite schedule which I try and stick to and in the afternoon I'll continue what I've been working on that morning uh, for continuity I just find that works best and I try and try and finish before six um, but again sometimes that doesn't always happen and then some evenings I'll work on my own research or you know in the last few months I've just started going back out and about again to talks and events in the evenings as well so if there's something I fancy going to um, I'll do that but I also try and be already out at an archive or a library so I can, I'm, I'm out already, so I will go make myself go to something jolly in the evening. So thank you so much, because I really do struggle with that, like the accountability of having lunch and actually take, tearing yourself away, especially when you fall down a, a research rabbit hole. And so it's really great to hear someone who's mastered that structure, which I absolutely, but I'm, I'm, I'm only in historic consultancy now two months three months so a baby and so I still haven't quite uh been very strict with myself I wouldn't say I'm 100% there either to be honest <laughs> but it's it's the ideal it's the ideal and um yeah. usually I'm successful but yes you know we have to be <laughs> gentle with ourselves don't we you oh. know not to beat ourselves up too much if we go over you know we have a longer lunch or if we have a shorter lunch or you know yeah we, we have a, a self-care episode coming up on the on the show which was Lucy's absolute genius idea and um it was it was great really really good how to look after yourself in those moments so we'll uh that'll be out too which would be great <laughs> it's definitely important isn't it and it's something that we all are guilty about you know just not not treating ourselves well enough sometimes I think I mean I've worked from home from since 2005 and I still do not have a good routine or how to take proper lunches or do anything that you should do. So between this episode and the self-care episode, I think I'm going to come back as a, a much better person. <laughs> and one of the things we wanted to talk about was the structure of businesses. Um, and 
the difference between being freelance, as in, I guess, self-employed or whatever that looks like to you, and operating as a limited company. How did you decide which was the best route for yourself and your businesses? Yeah, well, I worked as a freelancer under the name Archangel Heritage for seven years um, before I made the decision to become a limited company, um, which I did in 2017. Um, I'd been thinking about it for quite a long time. Um, and although I'd been working under the business name of Archangel Heritage as a sole trader, um, there were two main reasons why I decided to take the plunge at that specific time. Um, I decided that Archangel Heritage would be better fit for some of the work I was doing in the commercial heritage sector. And uh, whether it's true or not, I thought it was somehow more professional in in some ways, but I'm I'm not sure. But I bring, I mean, to be fair, operating as a company rather than a freelancer did open up different sorts of opportunities, um, especially with things like tendering for projects. And I found that I was invited to tender for more things than I had been as a freelancer. And there was a different, there was sort of a wider reach in terms of other companies and organisation who wanted to work with me as a limited company rather than as a sole trader. And secondly, um, at the time I was beginning to start, that's when I started to give talks and workshops and began to write my, fir my first book, um, which was on Beach Huts. That was published in 2017. And I didn't want that to be under the Archangel Heritage banner. And I wanted that as myself, um, as Karen Averby. So that was sort of what prompted my decision just to become a limited company at that time. That's great. And I think it's a really interesting and important point about well, there's the perception of what a limited company is. I mean, a limited company always, you always feel that like it's going to be more than one person. And you know, even now, I still think that maybe a limited company will have offices or maybe a reception or something. I don't know. <laughs> but you know, it's more, it's more than it sounds. It's more than it actually is in many, many cases, I think, isn't it? Um, but it's interesting about working with big organizations and like museums and councils and things and the opportunities that are available if you are a limited company that, that aren't available as a freelance. I think that's a, a key point for many, many people listening. No, it's very, it's, it is very true. And, you know, I, I don't know if people know this so much about me, but I am the only employee in my company. It doesn't have to be, you know, several employees. I do use freelancers as well. But, you know, in terms of em employees, it is just me, me, myself and I, you know, that I am Archangel Heritage in a sense. Thank you so much for that, Karen. Um, our next question then is probably then in relation to that, which is how have you managed your finances, including budgeting, tracking expenses and invoicing clients? And what tools or systems have you found helpful for financial management? I've be always been more of a words than a numbers person. So it had, it was very daunting to me at first. But when I first went freelance, I had a very simple system because I didn't want to make it more complicated than it was. And I just used um, an Uber spreadsheet, um, which I used to track everything. Um, I had columns for date of invoice issue, date of payment, expenses, etc. And I manually uh, created invoices in Word. But as the volume of jobs grew, I found I just I really needed a more efficient process uh, to minimise the admin because I found I was spending quite a lot of time and, you know, trying to get it right, sorting out all you know, tax issues and things like that. So I just really needed to sort that out. So I looked at a few accountancy systems and I opted for QuickBooks and that really helped uh, to streamline the process. And that was when I was still a freelancer. 
Um, and then I went limited. Um, I kept QuickBooks, but I also got an accountant. And that really was, a, you know, the best thing that I did, really, in terms of that side of, you know, finance things. Um, my spreadsheet, I still use it and I use it. It's it's now a colour coded uh, project spreadsheet, uh, which tracks just project progress. Um, so there's, you know, nothing to do with finances or anything like that in there. And now finance, um, in fact, finances are completely separate and it's so much better. My next question was, I don't know, I guess this is kind of the biggie question, which is, do you have any tips about actually getting paid? So this is getting the money in your bank account, I think, rather than asking for money. Good question. Um, For private clients, um, so when I do work such as um, house histories, I usually invoice for a third of the total agreed cost before I begin work. And then I'll invoice at the end um, upon approval of the final draft, which I which I watermark. And then when they make payment, I then provide them with a completed piece. And that's actually worked very well. And I've never had any issues with payment from private clients. But um, companies and organisations, um, especially some of the larger ones, they can be uh, sometimes problematic because they usually have their own payment terms and payment cycles. And when payment is late, according to your terms, uh, contacting the accounts person or department is pretty essential. And I've found that it's best not to go in with all guns blazing, uh, because chances are you're going to need to contact these people in the future. So it's good to create good relationships with the people who process payments. I think that's pretty necessary, actually. Um, They're, you know, humans too, they're doing their jobs. And they're usually quite sympathetic uh, to sole traders and small businesses as well. So I think that's quite a good um, a good approach to make. But also um, one of my top tips is to create terms and conditions to issue to clients at the outset of a job. And I attach these to my fee proposals, um, for example, which include specifics about payment terms, including details about late payment fees. And you might also want to include these payment terms on invoices as well. And I think another point to make related to that, if you're commissioned by a third party on behalf of a client, emphasise that they are the ones responsible paying you uh, within the agreed payment time and also include that in your terms and conditions as well. And of course, um, there's always flexibility. And if the third party is a small business or sole trader as well, they might not be able to afford to pay you until the client has paid them. So just keep communication open and agree on terms that, that suit you both. Be flexible. That's all really sensible and really great, actually. And I think probably something that a lot of people overlook, especially in that when you first got a new client or got a new job or you're so excited, you want it so badly, don't you, that it's easy to to forget the, that side of things because you just want to secure it. And actually coming up with the contracts and the terms and agreements isn't always a priority right at that moment. But then obviously that does come and bites you sometimes, doesn't it? That's true. It can be quite daunting to, um, you know, set out your terms and conditions, you know, when you're when you're yes, when you're trying to you've got a new client, you're trying to impress them, you want to say yes, Mm. um, but you have to protect yourself. And and that's the way to that's the way forward. I'm going to boast a little bit, but I've been working with one organisation for two years now and I invoice them and they pay the next day with fail. Actually, once they paid the day after but it is usually within 48 hours. And oh, the thing, That's I guess the thing, the flip side of that is I treasure them so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I will do anything for them because they pay quickly. There's no problems, everything is lovely and smooth. So I guess, I guess there's a case about, you know, 
it's good for the organization to be a quick payer as well isn't it it's good for their reputation it's um good for all of those things too yeah because i have definitely been guilty of the overexcitement. um it's happened to me and actually it uh it flows quite beautifully into the next question i have for you karen weirdly enough and it is that um what lessons or insights have you gained from running your freelance history business for a while? And what advice would you give to someone like little Laura starting out in a similar endeavour? I have quite a few. So do stop me if I keep going on and on. But I think it's really important to to share experiences with people, perhaps avoid them making the same mistakes that maybe I've made or other people have made, you know, when you're starting out. And like you say, you're eager, you're eager just to get on with the actual job in hand rather than all this, you know, sort of admin and and so on. So it is a real learning curve uh, to run your own business. It's a bit of a cliche, but it really is sometimes steeper curves than others. Um, But um, (laughs) I think one of the first things to say is make yourself visible so clients aren't necessarily going to know that you're there Um, a good website is important and it needn't be anything too fancy just enough uh, just to simply convey what you do Um, some sample projects perhaps and include contact information or a contact form in an easily spotable place there's nothing worse than being on someone's website and you can't find how to get in touch with them I would avoid putting phone numbers on websites I think contact form or email is is best because you can get called you know by all sorts of people wanting to know different things and it's it's quite a drain on your time I initially did have my phone number on there but it was um, you know of course that thing of wanting to have new clients you want to answer the phone all the time just to get these new clients but it's going to interrupt your day far too much I know some people do prefer to have their phone numbers on but I've decided it's not good for me images on your website are good as well but not too many so that it overwhelms you just want to keep it simple and I actually really need to update my own website at the moment so um, I'm sort of guilty of not taking up my own advice I need to update it with new projects It can sometimes take second place to other work, but it's a necessary thing to do. Always be consciously organised, which can be a bit of a learning curve again, because when you're employed, much of the admin is already done for you to some extent. At first, I had details of all current current job requirements in my head when I first started out, such as archives I needed to contact and visit or archives I needed to request documents from and how I was going to travel and when. But when you start to build up work and the jobs keep coming, it's really important to keep a record for each job. Keep a record in a way that suits you, uh, whether digital or on paper. So what I do is I create a new digital project folder and use a digital project sheet for, for job details with a checklist. And then I add to the folder, the main folder, as the job progresses. Um, in my case, it could be mainly images of archive material from archives and photos from site visits, versions of reports and so on. Um, and just just have that there so that you can just pop into it every time. And I use Dropbox as well so that wherever I am, I can just access information. It's, um, it's really uh, useful. This is a practical one, but get insurance. <laughs> you might think as I did when I first started out that you don't need it, especially working you know, as a historian and providing historical research, but you really do. And this is I'm not talking from experience here, but I've heard some, you know, stories of people who weren't insured and it's 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 quite a sad affair, really. Um, especially as well if you're undertaking site visits as well or providing research for commercial clients. And there is a specialist insurer that insures historians and people who work in the heritage sector and they're his Cox insurance Um, I probably shouldn't promote people but they're the only ones that I know of that provide that specialist they understand the business they understand what we want insuring 
and a good one, get in touch with people doing similar things to you. Um, don't see them as rivals, see them as potential collaborators, because there may be times that you can pass work on to them and vice versa. And there might also be projects that crop up that you could work together on as well. And the chances are they might even have advice for you. I think in the main, I've found fellow independent historians have been happy to share their experiences. I mean, let's face it, most of us are working alone. And, um, you know, we welcome the chance to talk about our working lives. This is one we've touched on already. Be kind to yourself because we don't have superpowers. When life serves you a curveball, if it's a bereavement or an illness, don't power on through and talk to your clients. That's really important to keep that communication open with your clients if you can't meet your deadlines due to um, such thick curveballs as these and they will understand I've learned to top, stop and take stock before resuming work when you know things life events happen and I think that's so important but keep that communication open with your clients so they know what's happening and you know I've never had a problem with that and this is a big one I think you'll it'll resonate with both of you don't work for free um, it, it can be tempting to say yes to projects or pieces of work that may promise future work on the back of this or to offer you exposure. I think we've all heard that word. But in reality, it undervalues you and it also undervalues your fellow historians as well. And I think there, there can be a few exceptions, uh, perhaps doing something for a charity. But um, often every project that you're asked to contribute to will have a budget, even charities will. But such things, I think you ha they have to be at your discretion. For example, um, I wrote a local history column for some years in a local magazine and they didn't pay me. But what they did do was place my advert for my house history services in every issue. And I got a lot of work through that as a result. I got house history commissions um, as well as talks and workshops as well and involvement and contributions to heritage projects. So that worked. That was a good arrangement that I had. And I've got a final tip that I thought some a final thing to say. <laughs> um, learn how to manage client expectations. And again, this is another quite important one. Don't promise the world and don't promise that you'll be able to find out who lived in their house in 1647. Don't promise that at the outset of a project. And if you're doing work in phases, set out each phase with exactly what you'll be doing in each phase. For, for commercial heritage clients, for example, I set out a scope of works in my fee proposal and I attach those terms and conditions to that as well wow they are all brilliant thank you so but much it's, it's so good to have such a clear answer it's so so much information and so many tips there uh, as, and yes that that one about the working for free yes it's so easy to fall into that trap isn't it it's so easy just to be so grateful to be asked to do something that you end up just almost forgetting to mention the money Yes. Yeah, it, it is true. When you're having a conversation with someone and somebody wants you and, and they want, you know, them to you want they want you to produce work for them and you get so excited and it's almost like you're almost embarrassed to ask them, um, you know, what are they going to pay you? And it's um, we've I think when we're starting out, I think we've all maybe done it. It's a difficult question. I mean, it shouldn't be difficult. It should be quite easy just to ask what is the budget? And once you've done it a few times, it does get easier I mean I often get asked to do talks I now have a little template email that says what is the budget for this project one of the things I've found that if you are finding it difficult to um to write words like what is your budget and all of those things because you get a bit self-conscious I found using chat GPT as a really good way of sort of the robots have no self-conscious 
they just write a lovely little uh, paragraph about how you should get paid and what's the budget and all of those things. I find it a lot easier than actually trying to do that myself. So I've just outsourced any difficult asks <laughs> to AI. <laughs> That's my tip. <laughs> I'd, ne- I'd never even thought of doing that but I think I think when you mentioned uh, templates it's very good once you've got a template that works just keep using it it's um it's a very good thing to have in your back pocket and I think oh that brings me on to something else actually when your uh, a client is talking to you on the phone and they're asking you what you what you're charging don't reply there and then always say I'll you know I'll get back to you because you might say something and you know off the top of your head and you might not have worked out all the costs involved and uh it's no it's always better to say get I'll get back to you and then you can email them and have a think about what exactly you need to be charging the next question is really something I struggle with a lot so I'm really looking forward to your wise words on this one now how do you handle workload time management and work-life balance so it's work work and life um Mm -hmm. especially when you have multiple projects or clients and second part of this question have you made any adjustments to your approach over time yes I have definitely made adjustments over time um I think we've all been guilty of pushing on through with work uh, to the detriment of other aspects of our lives um I have pulled all-nighters with writing up research and I have cancelled social events and I have declined invitations you know and I regret that now um sometimes when you're on a roll with writing or researching though it can be difficult to stop and when you've got a deadline or several deadlines approaching all you can think about is is work I think we mentioned it earlier as well sometimes when new ideas pop into your head in the evening you have to just get onto your laptop and you know do some online research or or follow that through and it's it's learning how to how to manage that I mean I do still have weekends where I work through a work part of the weekend especially with regards my uh, my own research sort of writing a book or articles that sort of thing but setting boundaries is important and now I do try and switch off in the evenings and weekends setting an alarm is a really good practical way to do that so I have you know alarm set for six o'clock and you know if I still need to carry on work then you know you sometimes do if you're in full flow you need to carry on but I think setting those boundaries is really important and that's the best practical advice somebody gave me that advice and uh, it was very good advice (laughs) as well and as for workloads I've I mean this won't be applicable to everybody but I established a really lovely and talented small team of researchers in various parts of the country that I can call on to undertake whole projects or elements of a project depending um, on their location specialism but but actually I, I do agree with you there because when sometimes if, I, if a project comes in for me I know I'm not the best person to answer it and I'm friends because I've worked in the museum sector for so long that I've built up this incredible network of fantastic historians who I know are just chomping at the bit so I can pass off a project to them or get them to collaborate with me on it or if somebody's away I can be the person on the ground or vice versa and I think that that having that collaborative element, we actually talked about that a lot in the networking episode, which is the collaborative nature of being an historical consultant. So I'm glad that uh, it makes financial sense too. Oh, totally. And I was just thinking of an example. I'm not, um, you know, sometimes I re- I'm not a medievalist, but sometimes if I'm researching a medieval building and there are documents that I can't um, readily decipher or even read very quickly. So um, I do have some lovely um, people that I can call on to do that for me because I could spend days otherwise and they can just you know 
rattle it off in in, in a day or whatever and uh, do the transcribing of, of these documents as well so it's you know knowing other people with specialisms that you can sort of call on to to join in with the project is it's it's been really good and that's really helped with, with managing my time and the time that I spend on a piece of work absolutely I I've had to do a few bits with the law and my friend he's a law and politics historian and he's great he's like give me it give me the jargon I'll translate it for you <laughs> like this is great because <laughs> I would just be hours just pouring through it yes. and I suppose then we just mentioned we touched upon networking and my next question is how have you built and maintained professional relationships such as networking, collaborating with other historians or leveraging social media to expand your freelance history business? Oh, yes. So talking about social media, it's um, it has been and still is a really good tool for me. And it has been you know, since I started over the, you know, right back in 2010. The best platform for me has been Twitter. Um, I was quite dubious at first, to be honest. I'll be, you know, I'll be honest about that. But my other half, who was always absolutely eons ahead with such things, he convinced me to try it. And once I took the plunge, I connected with so many great people on history and heritage Twitter, um, including fellow house historians, buildings historians, and four of us now actually regularly meet up and we, we've become great friends. There used to be something called tweet ups back in the day where you'd, you'd know each other on Twitter and then there'd be a tweet up at a certain place and you'd, all these historians and heritage people would would gather in the, in the pub or at some event or something. So it was really great to make those initial connections when I didn't really know anybody else who was doing what I was doing. And we've become great friends as well but we've also passed on work to each other too or we've worked on each other's projects and of course we can have a good rant together and advise each other as well so that's been fantastic and I I do really enjoy collaborating with other historians um, it can lead to future projects um, and I also co collaborate with artists buildings archaeologists conservators and it's really quite varied and I find that collaborations often come about through networking which of course does include social media but I have when I first started, I was thinking, gosh, you know, networking, it's a bit it's a bit of a funny one that that's not for me. But it absolutely is for everybody. And the, because the potential is really high, you know, there's conferences, talks anywhere that other heritage professionals might be attending as well. But I do have a bit of advice in here as well. Um, be a bit selective. Um, don't stretch yourself too thin by att attending every talk and every conference with the word heritage in it. But at the same time it can be fruitful to go to events that, that are perhaps not specifically your area. So have a think where there might be overlaps and be creative. Um, for example, I've attended archaeology conferences. I did study and work in archaeology too in the past, which has helped, but I'm not an archaeologist. But you'll be um, really surprised at what meeting different people working in various different areas of heritage can lead to. And when you are networking, you're going to events, don't just go with an armful of business cards and hand them out willy-nilly. Um, I think talking to people and getting to know what they do is really important and sparking up chats with people. And it doesn't really even need to be about where. One of the people I met at an event has become a good friend and we've worked together as well. And we actually started our conversation talking about music and we found out that we had so much in common. So you just never know. And I think social events at conferences as well can be the best way to get to know people in a more relaxed setting. Those pub conversations can lead to some great uh, collaborations. Absolutely. I do a lot of voiceover work and I do some narration as well as people really like the Irish accent for some strange reason. And so I actually, when you're talking to somebody who's producing that work, they're they're like, well, what, what is it that you actually 
do and then you tell them what you do and then they're like oh actually there's somebody who's looking for that and all of a sudden you become the voice of a particular archaeology school or field or university or you end up in campuses that's happened to me I've ended up on university campuses and libraries and the the girl who did the over, who did the voiceover, she's also an historian. So, and they pass your card on, or they pass your your socials on, and that's happened to me to me a lot. And even like, the most un uh, places that I never even thought, like in pubs, as you said, in pubs at conferences, but just just even chatting to someone on the street has gotten me a gig before. And um, so, absolutely top tip. I completely agree. I will say I'm actually a very shy person, so I've had to sort of um, push myself. Not well, you know, not literally launch myself across the room at people, but, you know, just chat to them. They're, they're human too. They're there. And especially other people that might be standing on their own, you know, just go and chat to chat to people. Um, I'm a lot more confident these days. But when I first started, because I'd always been in employment as, you know, a researcher or whatever. So having to re- represent myself was a really new uh, experience for me. Um, it was a little daunting, I have to say, but actually coming away from various events in those early days I'd be you know I think the current word is like buzzing or whatever but I would be really sort of feel really happy and it was you know it was promising it was it was fruitful and all of these positive words it really was good experience don't be disheartened if nothing comes of your your networking at a particular event one chap for example took my business card at a conference and he got in touch with me five years later when he set up in business and needed some research doing so and that led to several years of work uh, from this particular chap so you know it they can keep you in mind and they might just get back to you when you know in the future and and also I think it's important to keep in touch with former colleagues as well um some of my former colleagues have actually left employment and set up as freelancers too so again that collaboration has come from there as well final points in answer to this question um, you'll notice as your reputation and portfolio grows that increasingly work comes through repeat work from clients um, and also from word of mouth or you'll be invited to tender for jobs and hopefully uh, there will be periods of time when you'll not even have to think about things like advertising or anything like that because the work will just flow and that's that's just wonderful when that happens. And that actually follows really nicely into the next question. So can you tell us about any strategies you employ to market and promote your services to attract new clients and sustain your business in the long term? Hmm, that's, that's quite an interesting question. And it's actually one that I have been thinking about um, recently, because to date, most of my Archangel Heritage work has been working in the commercial heritage sector uh, with commissions relating to the planning process, assessing significance, etc. And I've placed um, entries in yearbooks of the professional bodies that I belong to, that sort of thing. And while I really enjoy this work and it's immensely varied and it's fantastic, I want to work more with community heritage projects and build on my seaside heritage work as well as writing. So I'm thinking of ways that I can, that I'm obviously going to need to advertise in different ways in different places. So that's a question that I don't have an answer to for me and myself at the moment even. But I think um, in terms of, marketing and advertising yeah place entries in the yearbooks of professional bodies that that I belong to and that's a sort of more traditional uh, way of doing things I haven't yet had to place any advertisements in in journals or anything like that which is I've been really fortunate but I think moving in you know a new direction that I want to move in I think I will have to sort of have a good long hard think about that but to su- sustain any business in the long term you need to be adaptable and and flexible and be prepared to apply work to different scenarios, uh, which I have actually been doing. But after the pandemic, um, 
which gave a lot of us time to reflect both work and life-wise as well. So I very much like to be steering more to work on projects that include my own research interests as well. Although having said that, I can honestly say that nothing I've ever researched has been unenjoyable. True. That is a great way to end that question because there's nothing as bad as being stuck in a rabbit hole and then just hating it, which is why I've always uh, avoided the PhD. I just feel like that would happen if I just got so into a, into something and then I was like, I don't even like this anymore. I'd be so devastated. Thank you so much for such fantastic answers from you today, Karen. And finally, our last question then for you is, are there any absolute don'ts or minefields to completely avoid? There are a few. Um, yes. And it's one of those things that I wish somebody, somebody had said to me when I started out. Don't undertake any work based on verbal agreements. You have to get those terms and conditions issued, get those contracts signed. I know I've said it earlier, but it's so important. And oh, this is a good one. You are allowed to say no. <laughs> um, back in the early years, I had a year where I decided to say yes to everything. And don't do this. Don't do that. Uh, be selective with projects that you take on, because otherwise you'll just get into a pickle. For our online presence episode, we had a fantastic guest, Tash. And she said the worst thing they can say is yes. If you've, if you've reached out. <laughs> so I just thought it was really funny because it's the other side of that. <laughs> I love that. Was that Natasha Wilson? Yeah, yeah. But when you said Tash, I don't know anybody else in Heritage called Tash, so I thought it might be her. <laughs> That's her, the one and only. Don't put all of your eggs into one basket. <laughs> um, if a client is using you as if you're on a retainer, just be mindful that this can be a negative drain on your resources. Um, in the early days, um, I had a client who would drop jobs on me with almost impossible deadlines, and it became our relationship became a little toxic from that because. While I was able to turn around some work for them really quickly, they came to expect it, which meant that other work uh, started to take a back seat. And happily, that does not happen anymore because, you know, I've learned from that. Although I do sometimes I'm in a position uh, to expedite work for people, but it depends on what other commitments we have at the time. So I think there was a that was a huge lesson for me to learn. And just another couple of small things, um, switch off notifications for emails because it's too distracting and people don't generally expect an instant response. So don't think just because you've got an email that you have to reply to it straight away. Don't, you really don't take take time and try um, to set a specific time of day to check emails and stick to it. Um, perhaps first thing, um, if people do need to contact you urgently, they'll call you. And if you want to leave your voicemail on and you don't want to answer, you you can. You know, pe there's nothing so much of an, an historic emergency that you'll need to be called on instantly. Oh, and related to that, set out of office emails for when you take leave or will be unavailable. Um, what you say in them is up to you, but it's important to set boundaries as to when clients can actually contact you. Because I mean, I've had clients trying to get in touch with me in the evening and at weekends, and it's just a no-no. Don't do it. Thank you. I've been guilty of writing back to an odd one on a Sunday. I'm going to absolutely stop doing that now. <laughs> yes, they'll expect it. <laughs> But of course, thank you so much to Karen and her fantastic answers for us. At this stage in the podcast episode, what we do is we pull from our mailbag, which are questions on finance that we may have gotten from our listeners or from people who we've spoken to. Now, it is just two very small questions, Karen. Uh, they wouldn't be too, too strenuous. I can promise you that. But uh, person A, our first, our first question was, I have a question about pricing. How do I work out what is fair to charge? Oh, gosh, this 
this can be a minefield but if you just take a step back and think about what it is that you're doing and how to value yourself you will you will come up with a price it's it is helpful to if you can find out what other people are charging but people are always going to be a bit cagey about that and rightly so you know sometimes it is a private thing but what you have to take into account is that you're covering holidays and sickness as well. You now, if you're talking a daily rate, um, you need to include that. Meal to, meals for when you are working away, perhaps even if the client doesn't pay for that. So all sorts. But I think um, you also have to value yourself. I think when I started, I, I was thinking, well, no one's ever going to employ me if my rates are too high. Um, but I found that when I raised my rates, actually somehow work became more just became more abundant um, which was really interesting actually I think it's it's interesting to also set different rates for different types of clients for example if I've got a charity if I'm doing work for a charity I will charge them a different rate to say if I'm working for a private solicitor's rates because the the, the type of work I'm doing is going to be um, very different and, and attract a different value as well uh, for different clients so it's important that so I do have a bit of a sliding scale but I do have fixed rates for certain jobs if that makes sense you also have to account for um, remember to charge for accommodation and for travel as well as, as expenses as extras and also if you are staying overnight include subsistence as well you know don't don't ignore that it's all really important because it all adds up if you're if you're paying for things out of your own pocket it does add up so it's really important just to put everything in into your your fee proposals when you're emailing clients with those terms and conditions at the bottom of course so that you get paid in a timely manner the second question we had for you from our mailbag was about testimonials so the writer said my big problem is testimonials i've done some work for a couple of clients and they seem happy with it but i'm scared to ask for proper feedback and also whether they would be happy to write something, a testimonial for my website. Any tips? That's interesting because I don't have any testimonials on my website. It's it's something I've thought about doing, but I always sometimes think there is a danger of looking at testimonials and wonder if they're made up, which it I probably I probably nobody else shares this view whatsoever. I mean, I've I've had some wonderful feedback from clients. And maybe maybe that's a lesson for me to promote myself more with using those testimonials. But um, I've I've never considered it. And it's really good to hear other people's views on that, because um, I could be doing myself a disservice here. Um, I think with with commercial clients, probably it's not a good idea to approach them and ask for testimonials. But more, the more private clients, I think, might be more happy. I mean, I have my, you know, I've lots of emails full of lovely feedback from clients and I've never had to ask for it I mean testimonials have been abused a lot in adverts um especially in um I mean I do a lot of work on historic quackery and stuff and they're always saying Mrs S from so-and-so says that this uh radioactive hair restorer so it's my research uh radioactive hair restorer brought back a full head of hair in two weeks and you know it's not true so there, there is a danger that testimonials aren't taken seriously um I thought it was interesting what you're saying about having um you know having that feedback from clients the positive feedback because I mean I went through a stage when I was feeling really really unsure about my writing ability and I had a little red book and I wrote down nice things that people had said about it so like if someone wrote a nice tweet and said oh I liked your book I wrote it in my little red book 
or an Amazon review or something. And it would be really really down, I would read it. So it would make me feel nice. So it's not all about showing off your testimonial, but sometimes it's just nice to remind yourself that there are people that appreciate your work. I love that. I love that. You're absolutely right, actually. I was just thinking about one of the best uh, feedbacks I had was somebody wrote, emailed me and put, yippee skippy. (laughs) That was it. That was it. They loved what I'd sent them. (laughs) A dream. (laughs) I think I need to start a little red book. I really love that idea. And it's it's about building confidence as well, isn't it? You know, like the self-doubts that we have sometimes. Things yeah. like that really help to sort of change your um, outlook. I, I will, if I'm confessing, I'll also say that I've got a five, one, my first five star review I got on Amazon, I wrote it out in my little red book. And then in my special blue pen, I drew five little stars next to my oh. out of it. And it made me feel happy. And I'm not sad to admit it. So we will keep that. No. I, th- I think we have to do these things because nobody else is going to do it for us in a way so yeah I love that and on that therapeutic note so we have covered a huge amount this episode and we will probably definitely revisit this topic in the new future but whether it's having a robust payment schedule or an advance agreement in place or just knowing your worth it seems that the business admin work of being a historian for hire is something to keep at the forefront of your mind now, before we let you go, Karen, we ask our guests one final question. And it is, if you could choose a dream remote office, where and when would it be? It would have to be overlooking the sea. Sea views are an absolute must. I absolutely love the coast. When is a good, it's a really good one. I'm almost tempted to say I want to go back to the Neolithic, but I think that's, that's a little stretch, that's a stretch too far. Um, <laughs> Hmm. I'm one of those people that doesn't have a favourite period in time. I have several because I'm very indecisive. So I'm going to go for, I'm going to go for Cornwall. No, I'm going to go for North Devon. North Devon coast or Cornwall, North Devon. And I'm going to be in the 1930s. Definitely. Must be done. Mm. Has to be done. I mean, I certainly when I think inside overlooking I definitely think 30s the clothes you could wear the things you could see and it would have to be a view of um quite a an interesting sea I love sea gazing so the more waves like perhaps the Atlantic Ocean actually yes um the more waves the more sea action the better absolutely dramatic (laughs) yes lovely thank you that was a brilliant answer I can I can almost envisage you there I think that's great. I can hear it. I can hear the waves. <laughs> I feel calm can... already. <laughs> oh, I'm going to have the seaside now. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much to our wonderful guest, Karen. And you can find her on Twitter at Karen Averby or at Arc A Heritage. And you can also find her at Instagram, uh, which is Karen.Averby. And of course, you can get in touch with her via karenaverby.co.uk and also archangelheritage.co.uk. And you can find us on uh, Twitter, Hist Biz A Guide. You can find Laura on Twitter at Laura Fitzak, on Instagram at Seek the Historic, TikTok, Seek the Historic as well. And you can find me on Twitter, Instagram and YouTube at Lucy Jane Santos underscore. 
We, of course, want to say a big thank you again to Karen and a goodbye from myself and Lucy. We will see you in the next episode. Stay safe in the meantime. Bye.